Today on Off the Cuff Declassified, we're going to be analyzing Donald Trump, America's and the world's big win in Singapore at the summit between Donald Trump and North Korea's Kim Jong-un. I'm going to have attorney Christopher Reed joining me. This story will infuriate you. How our government is so inefficient, it declared his young, disabled veteran client dead and yanked all of his benefits. We were able to help him. You're going to want to hear this. It tells you everything wrong with big government. I got to bring you a tragic, tragic update about a hostage situation in Orlando, Florida. And Barack Obama just won't go away. He's meeting with Democratic 2020 hopefuls. And wait till you hear who this group of winners is. I could not be prouder today of our president, Donald Trump, prouder to be an American and prouder to live in an America that, again, leads from the front. Of course, I'm talking about the historic summit in Singapore that took place last night, this morning, Singapore time, last night, our time here on the East Coast, at 9 p.m., out of which came an agreement where North Korea agrees to completely denuclearize. Now, I'm not saying I trust North Korea. But the mere fact that Donald Trump and the United States of America got North Korea to the table, shaking hands. Trump, by the way, is to be commended. Yes, I believe he deserves a Nobel Prize. Now, you guys know I'm a fan of the president, but I've never been a cheerleader of the president. When he's wrong, I call him out. There are people in his administration that I still think and, and have thought shouldn't be there. <clears throat> his son-in-law, his daughter, I never liked that idea. There are some other people that I would have liked to have never seen been in the administration. Reince Priebus, Katie Walsh, his uh, prior chief of staff and, and deputy chief of staff. But there is no debating the fact that Donald Trump knows how to make a deal. And there's no debating the fact that he is completely, completely dismantling Barack Obama and the Republican neocons, the, the Democrats' globalist agenda. There is no doubt. But let's look at the, the, the pre-meeting, if you will. Much has been written in the media about the meeting itself. Now, the details of the nuclearization deal are pretty scant right now. We don't have many details. We know that there are certain concessions, the most important of which, of course, is that North Korea is going to denuke. Others are that we're going to get the remains of 6,000 service people from the Korean War. That's a big deal for those families. A very big deal for the children and the grandchildren of those who fought, fought in that war. Uh, many of them are, you know, alive. Many of those families, their children would be in their 60s and 70s, their grandchildren in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. So these are relatively young families that'll now get some closure of, uh, for a deceased relative, which I think is a spectacular, spectacular thing. I've told you on this show many times, there is no more powerful weapon on this planet. I don't care about how many kilotons of nucus. Couldn't care less. There is no more powerful weapon on this planet to destroy communism, dictatorships, totalitarianism. No greater weapon than capitalism. None. So, of course, the left-wing media is hysterical about the way Donald Trump handled the meeting. But let's first go to the pre-meeting. Trump, Pompeo, and National Security Advisor John Bolton pulled off, Bolton pulled off a work of art. I'm suspecting, although she was uh, less visible, for obvious reasons, the new CIA director, Gina Haspel, had a lot to do with this as well. Not to mention Secretary James Mattis over the Department of Defense. Many, many people. Uh, General Kelly, the chief of staff, had input here. Tremendous input into this. The president is his chief of staff, but there's also Marine four-star general 
who has tremendous experience around the world. Now, Trump commanded this meeting from day one, first by sending Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to meet with Kim twice, an underling. I am the biggest fan of Secretary of State Pompeo, so I don't say underling in a demeaning way whatsoever. I think he might go down in history as one of the greatest secretaries of state. This man has accomplished more in months than his predecessors of many administrations have in decades. So I, but, but he's clearly in the chain of command, subordinate to the president. And so that sent a message to Kim that the president was going to send an emissary twice to feel things out. Then the minute Kim stepped out of line, the president walked from the summit. Kim then sent an emissary with a big card to the White House. Summit was back on. The summit took place as scheduled. Something I've actually been predicting at a better than 50% chance. Now, yesterday I predicted that we'd come out of this with a win. I didn't know it was going to be this big of a win, but I predicted we'd come out of it with a win because I suspect that the groundwork was already laid. I didn't think Donald Trump was going into this blind. I think a lot of the work was done by Secretary Pompeo and through the intermediaries. But the fact that Trump handled it that way, the fact that he handled it that way showed us something else. It showed us that the uh, United States controlled this from start to finish. The United States was in complete control here, complete command and control. Even the way Trump exited the meeting for a couple of days, it forced North Korea to take a submissive posture and go back to the White House with that letter. Then we get to the meeting itself in Singapore. If you look at the nuances of the body language, Trump escorting Kim in, Trump commanding the room. When they shook hands and looked at the camera, Trump giving Kim a nod. It's okay, now you can talk to the cameras. He controlled it. Those little subtle cues. Kim was looking to Trump to figure out when it was time to do the next thing. There was already, there was already a, a superior subordinate relationship there with the United States in the position it should have been. Superior. Superior. Not subordinate like Barack Obama was with Cuba. Those embarrassing, embarrassing photographs of Raul Castro holding Obama's limp wrist over his head. In contrast, the Trump, six foot three, six foot four, standing there, shaking Kim's hand firmly, looking down at Kim. That's what the United States need. I'm not saying height. Right, that's something you're born with. Obama was much taller than Raul Castro. He's about a foot taller than Raul Castro. Raul Castro still made Obama look weak, feckless, but weak, silly. It was such an embarrassing visual for the United States of America. But Trump goes into this meeting and he gets out of the meeting what he expected to get going in. Trump never sold, despite what the left-wing media tells you, Trump never sold the American people on anything remotely resembling him uh, having come out of that meeting with North Korea demolishing all its nuclear sites while they were in the meeting. He always said, we're gonna get to an agreement where they'll denuclearize, which we did, and we're gonna create an inspection framework, and then we're gonna move forward. And we're going to get some other things as well. The left was hysterical. People like Jim Acosta saying, well, Trump gave himself all kinds of outs if it doesn't work. These people are so unpatriotic. So unpatriotic, it's sickening. Then the left-wing media was hysterical because what came out of this was that Trump showed Kim a North Korean coastline on an iPad. And he said, what beautiful beaches. Wouldn't it be great if you had hotels and resorts? So, of course, the left said, oh, this is all about personal enrichment for Trump. A, so what? And B, it's brilliant. I don't care if it's Marriott. 
Ritz-Carlton, Hyatt, Hilton, or the Trump Organization that builds hotels there. Capitalism creeping in is only a good thing. Only a good thing. The left is hysterical for no reason. It was brilliant. A stroke of brilliance for Donald Trump to show Kim a developed coastline. Kim is infatuated with the West. He's infatuated with wealth. It was one of the, one of the, one of the best, uh, one of the best exercises in asymmetrical diplomacy I've ever seen. And I'm getting news alerts. See, I'm looking at my other screen. I'm getting news alerts uh, about, they pop up about Trump, but it's not, it's just stuff we've seen before. But I always, I want to check them in case something uh, breaking happens. Even though we're not a breaking news show, I want to at least give you the freshest content I can when you watch the show. I thought it was brilliant. Now think about the Democrats are hysterical that Trump used asymmetrical diplomatic warfare, let's call it, or diplomatic strategy to win. I don't care how we win. I want to win. I don't care how we win. If it requires Trump pulling an iPad and showing Kim that he can get rich off a developed coastline, God bless him. Do it every single time. And the left knows that as well. So think about the platform of today's Democratic Party. Think about the platform of their left-wing media allies. Seriously. It is literally... It is, they are literally saying, this is literally the platform of the left today. They would rather a destabilized Korean peninsula, uh, destabilized Korean peninsula under nuke threat. They would rather higher taxes, more regulation, higher unemployment, Hamas murdering Israelis, and MS-13 gang members flooding the U.S. They are literally saying that. That is literally the platform of today's Democratic Party. This meeting in North Korea did not just did not just see a win for Donald Trump. It was devastating to the Democrats and the left. Look, the Democrats and the left already had no economic platform going in to 2018, mid, the 2018 midterms and into 2020. None. Zero, right? Now they have no foreign policy message. They have no, if this simply maintains, if this accord, this agreement that was reached last night, simply maintains its status quo into the midterms, the Dems have zero foreign policy message. How do you run against Trump on foreign policy? Well, he was wrong. North Korea might do something. Well, it doesn't matter because right now it's working. They have nothing. I honestly have never seen a political party in my lifetime literally have no political platform. I've never seen it. Literally have no political platform. The Democrats do not have one winning message. This summit was devastating to them. They, and, and, it, and it shows you how sinister they are. They were rooting. They were rooting for a loss. Enter Dennis Rodman in his MAGA hat, crying on CNN. Dennis Rodman slammed Obama. Five years ago, this is from a Fox News story, Rodman said, Kim told Rodman certain things to relate to Obama concerning potential negotiations but the former president, Obama, didn't even give me the time of day. He just brushed me off, but that didn't deter me. Rodman got death threats. But, oh, but Kim was willing to talk five years ago. Obama, like his neocon buddies on the right, wanted a globalist world under the threat of war. Because if you have a globalist world 
under the threat of war, what do people need? Government. And why do they need government? To protect them, right? And when government has to protect you, when government is your safety net because North Korea is going to nuke you and Russia is going to nuke you and China is going to nuke you and ISIS is going to kill you and Al-Qaeda is going to kill you and Hamas is going to kill you. Government becomes big brother. They're going to protect you. They're your bodyguard. Give us your guns. Give us your guns. Let us regulate your speech. We don't want to make anybody mad now. We don't want to get into that war. The plot, the globalists, they're so sinister. And guys like John McCain tweet, and make no mistake, that's what globalism is about. To keep the world unstable enough so that the global citizenry needs government to protect them. But it's all a fallacy. It's all a fallacy. And this entire lie, this entire lie that Americans and the world have been told by the globalists, the Democrats, the neocons for decades, well, Trump is debunking it. He's smashing it. I feel Trump is at risk. You've never heard me talk this way. I genuinely feel the guy's life is at risk. I really do. I think the Secret Service has to be very nervous. Trump is disrupting a world order. He's bringing us back to a place we were right after World War II, when we were safe and prosperous and free and secure. And then the globalists, the neocons, the Democrats, the John McCain. There is probably nobody more evil in D.C. than John McCain, except maybe Harry Reid is not there anymore. Pelosi's a bumbling idiot. Feinstein, Diane Feinstein, as liberal as she is, she is often a pragmatist on intelligence matters. But McCain was a really sinister, is a really sinister, George Soros-type guy. I think he's done in the Senate, a very sick man. So I'll say was in terms of his political career. But a George Soros sick type, Harry Reid was like that. These were evil, evil guys. He loved this globalism, this ability for the governments to make people live in fear, to be afraid. I am so proud of our president. So proud of our president. This was such a win. Such a win. And I hope my analysis is starting to explain to you why the left is so terrified why they couldn't have this win. A peaceful world means a prosperous U.S. A peaceful world means a peaceful U.S. And when the U.S. is prosperous and peaceful, what don't you have? You don't have unemployment, so no one needs entitlements. They don't need welfare. They don't need benefits. You don't have poverty, rampant poverty. They don't need their EBT cards and their food stamps. You don't have race riots and groups like Black Lives Matter because the nation is peaceful and everybody's getting along and everybody's got money. And black families and Hispanic families are buying houses in nicer neighborhoods and people are integrating and everybody's getting along and their kids are playing together and people are having barbecues together. And it, it, it completely eliminates the need for the left and for government intervention. That's where Donald Trump is bringing us as a nation, where the U.S. is now bringing us as a world. And it has the left, the neocons, and the Democrats hysterical. Let's keep it up. Let's keep this up. I want to see this president win for another, how many years he's got? Six, seven years in office. I want to see him keep winning. But as much as Donald Trump has a mandate to win, you have a mandate as a voter. I have a mandate as a voter. Get up out of our chairs and vote. Because if we put Democrats into power, if we allow Democrats to take the House of Representatives here in the U.S., if we allow that, they are going to impeach Donald Trump. They are going to block his agenda. They are going 
to try to put that globalist power back into place. So it's time for us to do our part. Time for us to get up and to fight at the ballot box in November, at the ballot box, in the primaries that are going on right now, into June, into August, put the best Republican, the best conservative candidates on the ballots in those primaries and get out and vote in November and make sure that Republicans keep their majorities in both the House and Senate and that we replace the retiring rhinos in Congress with conservatives. They're going to help this president keep putting America first. There's a story I've been working on about a young disabled veteran, an awesome guy named Kyle Noose, just an absolute sweetheart of a guy. You can't help but like him from the minute you speak to him. I profiled Kyle and his attorney, Chris Reed, who joins me now, on another show I do last week. The story really hit me and many others, uh, not just on that production team, but also in the conservative world. And we took to social media to get Kyle's, uh, the word of Kyle's case out there. I then... Uh, tweeted it out, and I got it to some friends of mine in the White House, uh, Dr. Sebastian Gorka, who's a good friend of mine. You know, Seb Gorka has been on the show many times. He was really struck by this. We got it to many, many people close to the administration, and I am, couldn't be happier to report there was a little bit of movement. So to tell you all about it, a really great guy, by the way, who's doing, he's a hero in his own right, he's doing outstanding pro bono work for veterans, is Kyle Noose's attorney, Christopher Reed. He joins us from Birmingham, Alabama. Chris, thanks so much for being here this morning on short notice. Uh, really appreciate that you made the time. I'm happy to be here. My pleasure to have you. All right, so give the audience a bit of background on Kyle. Kyle is a young guy, he's in his 20s. He was a veteran, he served his country. He's had a mild form of cystic fibrosis that's progressed, but he hid this. As a kid, he played baseball, he played sports, he joined the military, but now it got to a point where it progressed and the Social Security Administration, Kyle's dad, who is very close to, sadly died about a month or so ago. The Social Security Administration mistakenly declared Kyle dead. And Chris has been fighting his battle. So Chris, tell us a little bit about that. What happened, how Kyle was affected, and where we are today. Well, Kyle was very close to his dad, and so that really did complicate his cystic fibrosis. Now. What I really like about Kyle is he's got this drive to overcome. It's like his mind is stronger than his body. But whenever his dad passed away and complications of a cystic fibrosis acted up, and then Social Security declared him dead, it was almost too much for him to handle. In fact, when I took over the case, it was he was maybe 16 17% oxygen function, and he just kind of lost the will to live. He just looked it in his eyes. Because they told him if they didn't get this health insurance fixed by the time he got out, if he got better, he wouldn't get his oxygen tank. He wouldn't be able to talk to a physician about pain management. And so if he got better, he was either going to come back to the ER because of shock or because he couldn't breathe. And he had tried so hard to get Social Security to listen. He sent them all forms of ID. Every one of his doctors wrote a letter well, Chris, and sent Chris, it. Let's back up just so the audience is clear. So, so how did it come to pass that Social Security Administration declared Kyle dead when it was, in fact, his dad who passed? Well, like Winston Churchill said, uh, civil servants are neither civil nor servants, and that yeah. definitely applies to the Social Security Administration. So um, they just – it's the easiest error to avoid. All right, so when his dad died, they both had the first name – 
Gregory's, they're both both their first names. They don't have the same birth date. They don't have the same social security number. So somebody just keyed in Gregory Nuss, and instead of looking at it like Ky a five- Kyle, Is Kyle a nickname, his middle name? It's Gregory Kyle Nuss, and okay. he's named after his dad, but right. they, whenever you're entering somebody's name to a death master lift, you always enter in a birthday and a social security number. Yes. Well, somebody at the Social Security Administration decided that was too much work for them to do, so they just saw a name that looked like Kyle's and said, oh, I guess he's dead. And once that entered in, Kyle's uh, his life, his health insurance was canceled. All his debit cards, he couldn't use any debit card. It's still going to be three weeks until he can access his accounts even now. And whenever we talked to the, whenever we talked to different people that have been through this, they said earliest we could expect would be about six months for them to fix it, and that would be soon for the Social Security Administration. Well, Kyle didn't have six months, so at that time we we're just like, well, we're going to bring it to the media, we're going to bring it to congressmen and senators, and then we finally got it to the White House. And it literally takes an act of Congress for the White House to get somebody at Social Security Administration to cut through red tape and help somebody like this. Because whenever they talked to Kyle initially, they were mad because he couldn't come over to, the, to prove he was alive, Unreal. even though he was fighting for his life in a hospital bed. And he had told him, like, can you guys just walk over here? It's yeah, a five-minute walk. Right, right. God forbid these taxpayer-funded employees could have sent somebody over in an Uber to the hospital to check on him. No, let's make the disabled veteran with cystic fibrosis come to them and wait online for four hours. It's, it, it, it's so infuriating. Now, one of the things uh, about this story that I particularly loved was that this was really a bipartisan effort. Look, I've, I've always been very honest about my political bent. I'm a conservative commentator. But there are certain things that should be apolitical. They shouldn't, I don't even want to say bipartisan, they should be apolitical. Helping someone like Kyle serve this country, the government completely botched it. Should have been apolitical, and this was, correct? You had Republicans and Democrats from his congressional delegation pretty much working very hard to help rectify this. Yeah, Senator Doug Jones, who's a Democrat, was very helpful, and Congressman Gary Palmer was very helpful. And actually, whenever I was thinking about how to do this, I really wanted it to be that way because it shouldn't be a right-left issue to help a disabled veteran in need. And every person I talked to on the left and right that's an elected leader did everything they could to help. And so I re I, this was one example where everybody kind of came together and put part of politics aside and helped Kyle. How many times, Chris, did you get any indicator when you were dealing with the representatives, when you were dealing with Social Security Administration, how many cases like this happen yearly? How many times does this happen where somebody's erroneously declared dead and their life is completely thrown into turmoil? Well, there is a, it's 14,000 times per year oh and God. out, and I think it's 40, 40 per day. And wow. Alabama, Alabama system's not as sophisticated as some other states. So we even have a higher error rate. And this would, this would never happen in the private market. This error rate would not happen because you would fire somebody if they consistently didn't know how to enter a birthday or a social security number. Literally, your only job is to make sure that the date of birth is correct, the social security number is correct, before you, you enter somebody being dead. You know, and you I know, Chris, train not, not, not to interrupt you, but, but I know the audience. I know the audience, as incredulous as I am listening to this. We're talking about the Social Security Administration not properly entering or entering at all Social Security numbers and erroneously yes. declaring people dead. That, if that isn't, if that doesn't perfectly illustrate how dysfunctional big government can be, I don't know what does. Oh, I, 
I mean, I'm, I'm very conservative. I always grew up very conservative. And I was furious because whenever I was calling them, they made it seem like we were inconveniencing them to try to get somebody over there to fix the error. But once they started getting calls from congressmen, senators, and the media, in fact, one of their attorneys emailed me with another, like, I think it was 15 pages of form for Kyle to fill out Friday. And I wrote him back and CC'd about 20 people in media, and I wrote him a very stern letter. But within about an hour and a half, uh, they, the Social Security people were in the office, and they were apologizing, and they had fixed the issue. But I, he's like, this is very important. I think it was very important for them to keep it private, but I wasn't going to keep it private. I'm like, look, if you're going to treat people like this, right. you're going to treat them like this in front of the entire media. And I hope that you have cameras coming to your office. And if that's what it takes for you guys to do your job to a disabled veteran, fine. They don't like me very much, but I don't care. I mean, if yeah, they're going to do this, job, your job as an advocate is to not be liked by bureaucrats, right? I mean, you're not really doing your job if bureaucrats don't want to do something like you, if you're playing ball with them. You know, this this story had a good ending, and it, it'll be a good ending if Kyle, if one day we find a cure for cystic fibrosis and Kyle's fully cured. But I'll say this 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 subpart of the story had a good ending because you happen to be a media savvy guy. You're a media contributor. You write. A lot of people don't have those resources, right? A lot of uh, even even veteran uh, attorneys out there like you who are doing the right thing, who are helping people, might not be media savvy, and they might not know that route to take. And it's a scary prospect, Chris, to know that this is happening to 14,000 people yearly. So if this is happening to someone else, what advice would you give them? Uh, what advice would you look for an attorney that understands what, obviously? I know you'd have anybody call you, but you're in Birmingham, Alabama. So if this is happening to somebody in Seattle, Washington, what's your advice for them? Yeah, I do think having an attorney with media background makes a real difference because if you went about this the normal process, it would be prohibitively expensive and take forever. I mean, the only reason I was able to do it because I co-host a radio show, I do frequent TV appearances, and I worked in D.C. for Heritage and for the Republican Party, so I kind of know my way right. around that whole system. But even if you have an excellent attorney who knows how to file things and move things along, you really have to have an attorney who knows how to work around the system and can get through the red tape. And if I didn't have the specific background, it would have taken forever. So I'm just very thankful that somehow he found me. But once he did, I wasn't going to let it go until we figured out how to get his health insurance back. And yesterday he got his health insurance back. And, awesome. and, mm, and instead of six months, it took eight days. And I was like, that's what that's the difference when you can apply media pressure and political pressure to those people. But if you can't apply those things, they don't care if they get sued or you file something or whatever. They can't get fired. But once people start coming to their office and yell at them, you have the White House giving them calls. Even they have to respond to that because at the end of the day, they don't want to be bothered. And so if you annoy them enough, they'll actually do their job. But that's what it takes. That, you know, I try to tell this to people all the time. I, I've run into situations, uh, even down here in South Florida, where I am, where people had issues with politicians. I, I'm from law enforcement, and I am I'm a conservative guy. My show is 99.999% pro-law enforcement. There was a situation down here with a sheriff who's got problems. He's under criminal investigation. The case is currently with the state attorney's office, and he was particularly heavy-handed to the African-American community, and I went to some of the community leaders there, a couple of pastors, and I said, look, this is a small rural county. The only thing, Reverend, that's going to get you attention from prosecutors up in Tallahassee and around the state is media attention, and they refused. No, we don't want to bring attention. This is private, and some people just don't understand how powerful that can be to move people who'd otherwise be apathetic because, Christopher, you nailed it. 
They don't want to be bothered. They're very comfortable collecting that government paycheck. It never stops coming. And unless you make their lives a little bit uncomfortable, they have no incentive to help you. Yeah, until we actually reform our federal worker laws to make it easy to fire them, it's always going to be like this. And, and we passed these laws in, in the 19th century. Huh? It's, 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 it's terrible. Okay, so what now needs to be done for Kyle? He doesn't have access to his bank accounts. It's pretty hard to function. How old is Kyle, by the way? He's 28, and his life expectancy, best case scenario, is about 35, 36. But if there's some new treatments coming out, and hopefully he could extend it out a few years. Now, this new uh, right to try law that the president signed a few weeks back, which gives patients access to drugs not yet approved by the FDA, but in the FDA pipeline, does this help him at all? Are any of those? Uh, are there any of those types of treatments in that pipeline? Actually, I did some research, and there's a 123 trials related to cystic fibrosis in Birmingham alone. So we're trying to see which one would be good for Kyle, but Alabama had a right to try law very similar to the federal law. What President Trump did was streamline the process for every state, which will amazingly move the process so much quicker. So Alabama had actually had one of the, a very good law on this. So we'll see. Thank, he's not terminal at this point, but as he progresses and progresses, if it looks like there's some promising studies that could save his life, yes, he absolutely would qualify for right to try. And this will make a difference for tens of thousands of people. My dad's a physician. Whenever he heard about this going through, he was ecstatic because he's like, it's ridiculous that terminally ill people can't at least get a chance when we know some of these medicines could cure them. So we should have done this years ago. And I'm so pleased with President Trump taking the leadership because it will absolutely save so many lives and make a difference in so many families. Now, now with the federal right to try law, Chris, it, 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 patients can go across state lines, correct? So if, if, there's a, if there's a trial being run in, at CDC or, just for argument's sake, in, in Georgia, Kyle will be allowed to go there. He doesn't have to only submit the trials in his home state, right? You can go, yes. You can go anywhere as long as you meet the criterion for the trial. And they've reduced all, like virtually all the barriers for people to get these medicines. And it's truly amazing because... They cut through so much red tape in this yeah. thing. It's going to truly reform and change people's lives who need access to those drugs from all over the country. So what can the audience do? I, I, look, he still doesn't have access to his bank accounts. I know you have a GoFundMe set up for him. I, and I want to say that I rarely, I rarely sponsor GoFundMes, but I, I've now dealt professionally with Chris. I've spoken to Kyle on air. These are two of the most genuine, reputable men I've ever come across. I have... No, I, I enthusiastically encourage people to take a look at any way they can help Kyle. What are some ways that the audience can? Yeah, if you go to GoFundMe, the hashtag is Saving Private Kyle. So GoFundMe, Saving Private Kyle. You can donate there, and that's a way for him to get access to funds until his uh, cards are open. I'm actually bringing him cash to the hospital on Friday. Hopefully I don't get mugged. But uh, so we're bringing... So until he gets it fixed, we're going to have to find out a unique way to do it. But that will help him a good deal. And then just if your audience would be just lift him and his family up in prayers. It's just been tough with losing their dad and and with him going through this. And that's made a world of encouragement. But really, you made a huge a difference. Just that tweet you sent and Sebastian Gorsuch sent that made that started the process. And it truly, truly sped up everything. So we're very thankful for you, John, for doing that. And Kyle could not be more thankful. So I just want to uh, make sure your audience knows that. Oh, uh, well, Chris, I, uh, this isn't for recognition. It was the least we could do. We, I, I rarely do a segment where I speak to people and it's tough during break. We, we were so infuriated by what you and Kyle told us that when we went into break after the segment ended, I was livid. I, I said that, that the second I'm off air today, I'm going to start making phone calls and, and working on this because... This shouldn't be.
This absolutely shouldn't be, but thank God people like yourself, I mean, you're taking on veterans cases pro bono. You're a busy guy, you've had a successful law practice, and you're, this was really, I, I was so impressed. This was not about money for you. This has never been about a red cent for you, this case. No, it wasn't, and he, he couldn't have paid me even if he wanted to, and I was thinking like, you know, I can move my cases around, and God will provide, and I just could not take the case, and it's just, I saw him suffering, and I knew that if I would get involved, I could really help, but just to look on his, after I heard his life story, I was like, I, I have to do something, yeah. so I told my staff, we're going to do this, whatever it takes, and everybody, nobody complained, they stayed late, they moved things around, my clients were super nice about giving me a little extra time. So I love doing it, and I was happy that I even got the opportunity to serve someone like Kyle. It meant the world to me to even get a, to be a part of it. Chris, you're a good man, very good man, and it's too few and far between. You've done you've done exceptional exceptional work here. You you may have saved uh, Kyle's life. Attorney Christopher Reed, Birmingham, Alabama. His client is Kyle Noose. It's GoFundMe slash Saving Private Kyle. Really important case shows the dysfunction of the federal government. And like Chris says. Can't afford to donate, just send some prayers to Kyle and his family. And also, read about his case. I want you to read about Kyle's case. There are a couple of good articles on it. Uh, there's an article uh, on Newsmax.com where we did the original segment on this. But uh, it's very important for you to read this so you can understand the dysfunction of big government. Chris, I'm going to be wanting to talk to you again. I want to do a whole segment on the inefficiency of governments. So I want you to come back on with me and uh, let's talk about that. I would love it. All right, Chris, Christopher Reed, attorney Christopher Reed out of Birmingham. Chris, thanks very, very much for your time this morning. You're welcome. Terribly, terribly tragic story out of Orlando, Florida. I was following this story yesterday. It happened after I had already recorded the show, and I had hoped to bring you a different story today. An Orlando police officer was responding to a domestic dispute, was shot in the neck. Police officer was severely wounded, but lived. Went to the hospital, had extensive surgery, and lived. Despite these massive injuries. Very, very lucky uh, on the part of the uh, great work by the surgeons and, and a very lucky, lucky police officer. The guy that uh, nearly killed the officer, shot the officer, was named Gary Lindsay. And after he had shot the police officer, responding police officer, Lindsay took four children hostage in the apartment. Now, the standoff lasted for about 12, 13 hours. Uh, the children ranged in age from 1 to 11 years old. Originally, that uh, was thought to be 12 years old, 11 years old. Two were believed to be Lindsay's kids, and the other two belonged to his girlfriend who had fled the home. Now, this went on and on and on until about 9 p.m. last night. The SWAT team, the Orange County and uh, uh, Orlando City SWAT teams were there, uh, many, many police officers. They were trying to negotiate, trying to negotiate, trying to negotiate. Well, they heard gunshots, breached the apartment thinking that he had killed one of the children, and sadly it turned out he had killed all four kids and himself. It's a hard story to report. I've uh, unfortunately had to respond to murdered children. They originally, this was in West Orlando, right near uh, the Universal Studios, amusement park, an area where families are. Many of these uh, condos are, are rented out as Airbnbs or, or vacation rentals. This is not a place where you typically expect this. It's a place where people go to enjoy themselves, have vacation with their families. Um, this all started on Sunday around midnight. Sunday, you know, Sunday going into Monday morning around midnight. 
they, they received the domestic abuse call. Let me read this to you. Authorities from a Fox News story. Authorities are responding to a domestic abuse call at a West Orlando apartment complex when Lindsay, the killer, fired at them around midnight on Sunday. Officer Kevin Valencia was shot and suffered, quote, very significant injuries. That from uh, Chief of Orlando Chief of Police, Mina. And uh, the officer is expected to survive. The officer is expected to survive. It's, uh, wow, it's tragic. And, and like I said, the Orlando Chief of Police, John Mina, said that Officer Valencia is expected to survive, but the injuries were significant. And that's touch and go. They're watching that. This guy was 35 years old. He was on probation, again, with the liberal judges, on probation and had a criminal history involving arson, battery, and death. But again, this criminal justice system we have sucks. A neighbor uh, who lives in the complex said she was awakened by the sound of four loud gunshots after being asleep on the couch. She said she just heard pop, 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 pop. She looked out her window to see several police people carrying a police officer and performing first aid before getting him into a patrol car and speeding away. Now, there's going to be a lot of after-action analysis here. A lot of people are going to say, well, the police should have, could have, would have. But let me tell you, this is about the most difficult scenario I can think of. A hostage situation is difficult in and of itself. A hostage situation in an enclosed area, like an apartment, is even more difficult. Because you only have one way in and out. It's not like a big house where a SWAT team can come in through a basement window or a side window or, <clears throat> excuse me, or a door. Often in an apartment, there's one way in and out. One door, maybe a window. If it's a garden-type apartment with windows facing the outside, not in a high-rise, or it's a low floor. One way in and out, meaning it's a kill zone for the shooter inside. That's difficult enough, even without hostages, with a barricaded person. Now you're adding four children to the mix. You can't breach the apartment. You can't just kick the door in and throw in flashbangs. People are certainly going to die. Very hard to use a sniper because apartment walls are typically sheetrock. That round could penetrate the bad guy and potentially hit an innocent. One of the kids, a neighbor. I can't think of a more difficult tactical situation. So in this case, the Orlando police, the Orange County Sheriff's Office, really did the only thing they could do. Negotiate with the guy. In this case, the hostage taker, most definitely tactically speaking, had the upper hand. He was talking to them. They really had no reason to go breach while he kept talking. But this guy was just evil. Evil. And when they uh, heard a gunshot, or gunshots and feared he killed one of the children, they breached. They entered. They had no choice at that point. Uh, I I don't think anything. I know the police are going to be praised by some. I'm going to praise them. I think they did a great job here. Uh, I think they did the only thing they could do. Right? And I know it sounds, it might not sound right to say great job. I don't mean it uh, to to diminish this tragic loss of life. I don't. But I think their restraint was what was needed here. Some situations just go sideways. They just go wrong. People die. Babies. The police, to me, as somebody who's responded to things like this, they had no other option here. No other option. <clears throat> I've looked at the aerial uh, shots of the complex. I've, I've uh, talked to guys I work with who went on to SWAT, some other active SWAT officers I know now. 
and uh, guy I worked with in NYPD who spent many years uh, on the as a hostage negotiator with the NYPD, one of the most well-trained negotiation units in the world, to a man and woman, they all said, and I feel the same way, that the Orange County PD, uh, Orange County Sheriff's Office in Florida, the city of Orlando police did the only thing they could do. And let me tell you, these cops are devastated. They are absolutely devastated. The photos of them having to hug each other are just heartbreaking. No police officer wants to have a partner up Brother officer, sister officer, shot in the neck. That's tragic enough. But there's something particularly heartbreaking to a cop about losing children. Those are the ones you always want to win. Those are the scenarios you always want to win. Unfortunately, here, it just wasn't going to happen. This guy was too far gone. He was too maniacal. He was too homicidal. He was not letting the police take him. But it just killed himself. That's why I say he was pure evil. Pure evil. He should have just killed himself. But instead, he took four babies with him. They were one, five, seven, and eleven. Uh, an absolutely heartbreaking, heartbreaking story. And pure evil does exist in this world. And and our criminal justice system certainly needs reform. I don't want to see nonviolent drug offenders doing life without parole. I don't want to see that, but man, I don't want to see homicidal maniacs like this evil, demonic savage out there on the streets, able to kill one other child. Somebody really can't come to terms with the fact that they're not president anymore. And of course, I mean Barack Obama. You know, the guy that embarrassed us in Cuba with Raul Castro holding up his little limp wrist. He basically was the world's doormat. He's hysterical that Donald Trump won big in North Korea, well, in Singapore with North Korea. But Obama is still apparently running the Democratic Party. No, it's not Tom Perez. No, it's not Keith Ellison, it is Barack Obama. This from Politico inside Obama's secret meetings with 2020 contenders. Still the reluctant leader of the Democratic Party. Reluctant. Now, I don't think he's reluctant. I think this guy wants to be in power again. I think he is anything but reluctantly leading the Democratic Party from the shadows. Obama has been providing counsel to Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and other presidential hopefuls. Barack Obama has in recent months met with at least nine prospective 2020 Democratic presidential candidates, including, and look at this winner bench. Remember, this is the party of youth, the party of progress. This is the party that, of millennials. This is the party that's supposed to show us new blood and new ideas. Obama has met with at least nine prospective 2020 Democratic presidential candidates, including, drumroll please, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, and Deval Patrick, former governor of Massachusetts, pulling them in for one-on-one sessions at his Washington office. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, and Deval Patrick. New blood, huh? Haven't heard those names. Haven't heard those names before. I think the collective age of the first three is like, let's do the math, like 200 years old. I think it's more than 200 years old. It's just... It's perfect. It's just perfect. 
Now, the meetings have all been arranged quietly and, and uh, without any public fanfare. Apparently, Obama keeps offices on the third floor of the World Wildlife Funds building in uh, Washington, D.C.'s West End area. They, uh, the, the sources are, are talking about the secretive sit-down, saying a stream of these people have been coming into this office. Obama apparently is not making any promises of support and is not expected, this from the Politico piece, He's not uh, making any promises of support, though, and is not expected to endorse in the 2020 race until after a nominee, excuse me, has emerged. And this is uh, uh, just an absolute lie from Politico. Obama has so far avoided direct conflict with President Donald Trump, save for a few public statements criticizing his moves, attempting to dismantle the Iran deal. Obamacare, protection for dreamers, though without naming Trump. Well, so basically Obama has criticized and had direct conflict with Trump on every single issue that Trump has attacked. Nice spin, Politico. Nice spin. Now, they are downplaying and trying to make Obama seem like this reluctant hero who's in the shadows and doesn't want to be the savior of the Democratic Party, but unfortunately is just going to have to be. But uh, I guess the lefties over at Politico are not reading the writing on the wall. Obama's entire platform has just been dismantled. Even Obamacare has been gutted with the uh, destruction of the individual mandate. Obama's office is declining comment on all this, but Obama is not reluctant. Now, here uh, is, is, there is some, some details. There are some details on the Bernie Sanders meeting. Because Sanders, who has more respect for Obama and the work of his administration than is often portrayed, requested his meeting with the former president held in mid-March. They talked about the future of the party and their different roles in it. They talked about what the party should be focused on and what would be a distraction. Obama discussed his views on the differences between idealism and practicality, and Sanders responded with his. It was like Palooza in that office, okay? They did not get into a specific discussion about whether Sanders would run again for president in 2020 because it would be a disastrous fool's errand especially after win upon win upon win upon win economically, defensively, foreign policy-wise by Donald Trump. It'd be the dumbest thing any politician in history could ever do. Dumb, 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 dumb. The meeting with Warren was Obama's second since leaving office, uh, according to people who know about both encounters. The first was in the spring of 2017 after Warren said she was troubled by the 400,000 bucks Obama was getting to speak at a Wall Street investment firm describing it as an example of the influence of money that she called, quote, a snake that slithers through Washington, end quote. Obama responded by inviting her in. They heard each other out. She didn't apologize, but she acknowledged what she'd kicked up with the comment, and they talked about keeping that conversation in mind for the future. And then their second meeting, Obama and Focahontas, Elizabeth Warren, was warmer, they said, from start to finish and came in April. They talked about Richard Cordray, the former head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, who is now the Democratic nominee for governor in Ohio. They reminisced. They talked about Trump. They probably also talked about grandkids and golf, like Loretta Lynch and Bill. Right? Because that's Democrats never talk about anything substantive. Obama and Biden apparently remain close and speak by phone. Biden came in for an in-person meeting. Deval Patrick is Obama's good buddy. They want to see Deval Patrick in the race in 2020. He's a bit younger. He's African-American. That was always going to happen. I don't predict it'll make it out of the primary. He's not a particularly inspiring guy. Uh, he is a, a solid Democrat establishment. 
Though I don't expect Deval Patrick to get too far when you've got bigger names who are solid Democrat establishment, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden. Deval Patrick, relatively unknown guy outside of being the governor of Massachusetts, had a little national notoriety during the Boston uh, Marathon bombing, but quickly fell off the national radar. And not a very wealthy man or like a bit Romney that has the money to keep himself relevant. This is really just about 40, uh, 30 some odd, 20 some odd, 30 some odd, 40, I don't even know, counting paragraphs of Obama swoon. But um, it also goes on to say that Obama is continuing to make those very well-paid speeches, no matter what Elizabeth Warren uh, said and no matter how many tantrums he threw. Now, they're all, they are saying that Obama is still fundraising aggressively. He's urging donors to contribute to the DNC, the Democratic National Committee. And he's, he says, it says his staff is looking at who to endorse <clears throat> on the campaign trail in the fall with an emphasis on the down-ballot races, having everybody vote Democrat down the ballot. One thing is sure, <clears throat> Obama's not going to go away. He is still very actively involved in the Democratic Party. I wouldn't be shocked if we saw Michelle Obama, God help us, make a run for something. But what we really need to do is reject any candidate Obama backs at the polls. We need to reject them. We need to make sure they lose in landslides so we can send a message to Obama and the DNC that socialism in the United States died the day Obama left office.